Hi, this is Bethany, your host of the Random Yogi Podcast, a weekly podcast about holistic living and physical, emotional, and spiritual healing, and of course, plenty of yoga and Ayurveda. We offer bonus episodes each month featuring yoga flows that you can do at home, as well as guided meditations. Thanks for joining us. So I've begun cyclical living, which means you pay attention to the seasons, you pay attention if you're a woman to your 28-day hormonal cycle, and you live accordingly. So for example, you would try not to schedule huge work products um, during the weeks of the month that you would be a little more drained, have a little less energy. And I'm doing that with this podcast as well, even. For example, this month, last week, we, we had a grief doula on. This week, she inspired me Uh, to talk about my journey through my father's death. And then next week, the last Monday in February, we will be finishing up with a hospice nurse, which I think they're angels on earth. So I'm excited for y'all to hear that one. And then starting in March, even though the spring equinox is not until I think March 20th or March 21st, we're going to go ahead and, and go into more springtime themes like gardening, herbalism, things like that starting in March. So that's where we're at right now. And it's interesting because this time last year, my father was alive. Um, He was still living in Vietnam. He'd lived there for 10 years. My parents had broken up 16 years prior to that. And he was, he married a Vietnamese woman who is an American citizen and they moved back to Vietnam just because social security and and money goes further there than it does here. And he fell in love with the country and he was supposed to come home about three years prior, but because of the pandemic travel was canceled and visas were extended instead of him having to come home to get that visa extended. In the meantime, I'd been having conversations with him by FaceTime every Monday for several years at that point. And I'm so thankful because my father and I had been estranged off and on since my parents broke up. But a couple years, well, actually during the pandemic, um, I said to him, I don't like not talking to you on a regular basis. And so we had set it up to where every Monday at a certain time, he would FaceTime me. Uh, Cause it was cheaper for him to call me than for me to call him. And I'm so thankful that we had done that for the last couple of years of his life. Um, because I always knew that if I ever got a FaceTime and it was my stepmother's face, that something would be very, very wrong. And my stepmother and I had not been close whatsoever until, you know, about a year ago when dad got sick and I had no choice, but to finally deal with her. It was uh, about this time last year that I got the FaceTime. It was late that day and it was her face. And she said, dad had forgotten everything. And I really couldn't understand her besides that because she has a very thick accent and we had never really been around each other enough to learn to, to understand one another very well, but my father still could. And so I had her put him on the phone and I told him, I can't understand her. And he could listen to her and tell me what she was saying, but it was very clear that he was very confused. He thought we'd talked the day before we hadn't. And I said to her, you need to get him home now. Like you need to get him home right now. And within about two and a half weeks, she had him here stateside. And I met them at the airport at DFW. And um, it was the first time I'd seen my father in 10 years. I'd seen him 
10 years prior and had walked with him across the parking lot and I was holding his hand and I remember he took his hand away and I took it back because I just had a feeling it would be the last time that I would hold my father's hand. And luckily that feeling was wrong because when he got to the airport, he was very, very, very thin, very sickly. He had to be wheeled in a wheelchair, but I went and threw myself on him. He was elated to see me and um, cried on his shoulder. And the poor airport guys were like, Hey, miss, we've got to, we've got to move him a little bit further so we can take the wheelchair back. But they finally understood that I wasn't going to listen and neither was my father. Eventually though, of course I moved so that they could do their job and get him to where they needed to. And we sat him down and I had told his wife that we, I wasn't going to accept any arguments. My father had always argued about going to the doctor, even with my mother, when I was growing up, never listened to doctors. And I told her, when you arrive, I'm taking him straight to Parkland. And when he arrived, she said, have you told him the plan? I said, no, not yet. I said, dad, I want to take you to Parkland right now. And he said, I need to rest. We've been traveling for 24 hours and I have got to get some sleep because I couldn't sleep on the plane because they had to wear a mask. And he was having extreme trouble breathing. At this point, he was telling me that the doctors of Vietnam said that he had welder's lung, that he had, as a welder, inhaled so much metal through the years that it had calcified his, his lung. I assumed it was probably lung cancer, but I didn't know yet. But I was fairly certain that if I gave him, you know, 24 or 36 hours to rest, he probably wasn't going to die during that time. So I relented and agreed to um, let him go and rest. And I'd gotten a hotel room near the hospital, but my stepmother had her niece invite me to stay with them. And it was interesting because I had avoided them. And I had not been very kind the few times that I had interacted with them in 16 years. I'd never been rude. I'd been cordial, but never warm. And, but I wanted to be cl close to my dad. So I went checked out of the hotel, went home with them and got to spend um, the next week sleeping in the same house as my father. The following day, I did take him to Parkland because of all the COVID restrictions. We couldn't have any more than just one person with him. And I had said to my father, you need to ham it up. Like, I want to get you in and out fast. This is Parkland. It's going to be a nightmare in the emergency room. You need, you're sick, but you need to really ham it up. And we were, we rolled him in. They told me that I could, I could not stay with him until they had a room for him in the emergency room. And I said, okay, that's fine. And I gave them the wheelchair to wheel him through security. And I didn't even make it back to my car when the lady came and said, sweetheart, we need your help. And I walked in and my father was at the admission desk and he was slumped over. He looked gray. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to die right here. And as I began answering their questions, because he is unable to, he looks up at me and winks and then he slumps back over and they never saw it. Um, but needless to say, they took us back and triaged us very quickly. And once we were triaged, that nurse took us back very, very fast because she understood there was something gravely wrong. Because earlier that day, when we were sitting at the house in the backyard, just getting some sun, my father stood up and started looking into the sky at nothing. 
and said, do you see that? And I was like, no, I, I don't see anything. And he said, that's a Chinese plane flying over Vietnam right now. And he started talking about the danger. Well, we were in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. There wasn't a plane in the sky. He was also fascinated by the reflectors on the street. Um, And he'd lived here his entire life, except for those last 10 years. But he was like, what am I seeing shining on the street? So he really wasn't in his right mind. In any case, they let me stay with him throughout um, the Parkland trip, which took about 36 hours. We were admitted that night first to the emergency room. They did a CAT scan and they didn't even know what they were seeing in his lungs. And I said, well, the Vietnamese doctors said it was welder's lung. And they were like, we don't know what that is. And I said, well, apparently he's inhaled so much metal that his lung is calcified. And the emergency room doctor said, I've seen a lot of things on CAT scans and I've seen a lot of things in lungs, but I have no idea. And the radiologist has no idea what we're looking at. We've got to get some specialists involved, which of course extended our stay in the emergency room. We did get our own little room and he was able to finally get a little bit of sleep. I was not, there were no comfortable chairs, but that's fine. It wasn't about me. Um, It was interesting though, because we both started getting very, very annoyed because about the time I got him relaxed enough to go to sleep, just down the hall from us in the emergency room, someone who was clearly high as a kite and had been arrested. And so the police were there Um, And they had restrained this person to a bed, started screaming nonsensical stuff, you know, because they weren't in their right mind. And every time I would get him just relaxed enough and he would just begin to fall asleep, that person would start screaming about how they were trying to take her kidneys. I'm not really sure. Anyway, um, I will say I was pretty impressed with the care that we got, though, and, and we were admitted that night to the hospital for more testing. And they didn't really have, because of COVID protocols, they had nothing, nowhere for me to sleep. And I finally made a pallet on the floor once I got him relaxed in the room that we were admitted to for an extended stay. And I made a pallet with my coat on the hard floor and laid down. And my father got up at one point and started going through drawers and I got him back to bed. And He got up again and started doing the same thing. And I tried to pretend I was asleep, hoping he would take the hint. And he came over and he said, sweetheart, what happened to you? And I said, dad, there's no, there's nowhere for me to sleep or sit. So I'm just trying to sleep on the floor and I need you to lay down. But it was at that moment that I understood because I had helped take care of my grandmother when she had dementia. I understood that we were probably looking at dementia at this point. So we stayed, um, there was conflicting information the next morning about whether he could or couldn't eat all this kind of stuff. They wanted to do MRIs. They did some tests, but my father was a medic uh, in the army during the Vietnam conflict. And he was stationed in the Tokyo hospital and he never tolerated doctors or hospitals. Well, and I kept trying to explain that to them, like whatever you're going to do, you have to do fairly fast because he does not tolerate medical situations well it's he never said this but i i truly believe it was a ptsd sort of thing um because even in my younger days when i was in a car accident he came into the emergency room to see me and then he stayed outside the hospital the entire time until it was time to check me out because he just could not tolerate that environment 
Um, and so they let him sign himself out against medical advice the following day. And I took him home and I set up the testing that we needed. The only thing he hadn't gotten was the MRI. Um, but I was able to begin setting up his doctor's appointments, getting him a PCP, getting him an oncologist, things like that. Uh, because it was that morning right before he signed himself out that the pulmonologist came to me, a very, very nice doctor, uh, originally from Russia. She had a beautiful accent and she said to me, this is cancer. And I said, yes, yes, we, I figured that's what it was. And she began to show me the CAT scan. Now I'm a lawyer and a yoga teacher. I am not a doctor, but as she showed this to me and we, and we scrolled through his lung, basically from top to bottom, when we got to what they'd been seeing, it took my breath away. I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach and I looked at her and I said, it's inoperable, isn't it? And she looked surprised and she said, how do you know that? And I said, because I have eyes, I have eyes. It took up the entire width and depth of his lung and it took up almost the entire length of his lung. And what had happened was that cancer had finally gotten into the bronchial tubes and collapsed that lung, which is why he was having so much brain fog. I, Dementia runs in that side of the family. So he probably had some dementia going on, but it was exacerbated by the lack of oxygen. And so the next few months I had to learn Medicare because my father didn't have Medicare when he was in Vietnam, obviously. So I had to get him signed up for that. I had to get him signed up for Parkland plus I had to figure out how are we with me living four hours from Dallas and his wife's niece living an hour from Parkland and them not having a vehicle, how are we going to do what we need to do? And so I was back and forth quite a bit because I live in the Texas Panhandle, taking him to doctor's appointments and his wife's niece helped quite a lot. We uh, became more like sisters during this period of time, just because we had to defy. I took any of the doctor's appointment where information would be given because I'm the native English speaker. She took any of the diagnostic testing where basically they just had to show up and she had to wait for him. And we divided labor that way. And then his wife would take over chemo when we got that started. Um, and it was very trying to figure out all of this stuff was harrowing and stressful because I'm not really at the age where I had even had to start thinking about you know, Medicare. Um, and everything was still pretty much shut down because of the pandemic. Like you couldn't just call the social security office and get answers because everybody was working from home still. So there was a lot of, of doctor's appointments and I tried to make every single one of them. And I tried to, no matter how annoying. And I hate to say that, but he, he was a very annoying patient and very hard to get along with. I mean, there were many times he was trying to fight with me about what doctors should be doing. And I was like, I can't fight the cancer and you, uh, but I knew that time was short. And so I was trying to appreciate every minute that we got to spend together when I got some CBD cream for his arthritis in his hands, you know, I would rub that on him and and really just try to enjoy the fact that I was getting to hold his hand again, that I was getting to be around him again, even though he wasn't the same as he once was when I was younger. And then I took him to a PCP who I trusted very much. 
And the PCP primary care provider said, after he looked at everything, normally I would tell you to get your affairs in order with a tumor this large, but he said, I have seen tumors this big, eat the chemo very quickly and die rapidly. He was like, if you do one round and it doesn't cure it, I will fight for your right to quit, but you need to try at least one round of chemo. And at that point, dad was willing to, he had said he wanted to try that. So in the end, what it was, was five days a week of chemo and radiation every single Monday for seven weeks. And probably at that point we would have double checked and they'd already prepared us that if it had shrunk, it probably wouldn't be gone yet. We'd probably have to do that again, but we were going to check it after seven weeks So at that point, I helped transition his care to his wife, showed her how to get around the hospital where they needed to be. I found a cancer center nearby that would allow them to stay there. Um, And those people are just as big of angels as hospice workers um, because the families get to stay close to the hospital and take the free shuttle back and forth for treatment at no cost. cost. It didn't cost us anything. And that was really the only way that we were going to be able to get all of his chemos done. Because again, my father and his wife have lived in Vietnam for 10 years. They did not have a vehicle here. Vehicles had gotten crazy expensive. I couldn't trust him to drive at all. Um, So it was a godsend. It was an absolute godsend finding the cancer um, apartments close to the hospitals downtown Dallas. And so... Things continued to progress. I saw him last year on Father's Day, took them to Walmart and had got him some food. He was refusing to eat much. He was refusing a feeding tube. And at that point, um, I talked him into agreeing to a feeding tube so cancer could, or so that chemo could continue. But instead he refused again. And before that week was out, I got a call from my stepmother that they were at Baylor because she had called 911 and the ambulance wouldn't take them to Parkland. They took them to Baylor. And I will say, I appreciated the people at both of those hospitals, but I honestly, it's going to sound crazy. If you're in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, most people would prefer Baylor. I didn't because Parkland is a teaching hospital. Every time we dealt with anyone, They had read the chart. They knew the history. I didn't have to start from ground zero with them every single time we talked. They were wonderful. The doctors at Baylor were wonderful, but nobody ever read the chart. Every time somebody new walked into the room, I had to start from scratch saying, no, no, we've now done this. No, no. Now they've changed his medicine to this. No. And I had to be on guard all the time. Now the cafeteria food was better at Baylor, but I much preferred Parkland. So we spent the last two weeks of his life at Baylor. And um, as soon as we refused care, basically once he, I'd always told him it was his choice that we would fight this as long as he wanted to, but that we would honor any choices he made because he had lived life on his terms And I wanted him to die with dignity on his terms. When it was time to stop fighting, I wanted him to decide that. Until he decided that, I was going to fight constantly for him. But I always gave him the choice. If you are ready to go, all you ever have to do is tell me. 
And a few days before he was ready to go, I gave him that option again. And he was not ready yet. And I said, that's fine, but you can't keep fighting the doctors. You've got to do what they're saying. They, they have to administer the medications they're administering. You can't keep fighting them because your heart will stop if they don't administer potassium and stuff like that. And a few days after that, um, when I arrived, he, he was ready. I, I talked to, I talked to the, I'm sure I'll, I'll still say this wrong, palliative care, palliative care. I don't know. I talked to them um, and I knew that it was time to stop. And I asked how long we had, and they said two weeks. They were completely wrong. We had two days left. And um, so when I got there, I asked my stepmother, have you told him that he's dying? And she said, no, I was waiting for you. So when I got in the room and things got quiet, um, I began to cry and dad was watching me. And I said, dad, you're dying. And he smiled and said, you think? And I was like, okay, so you know, like, it's not a surprise to you. He was like, no, Bethany. And I said, well, I'm just crying because I'm going to miss you so much. And he said, Bethany, all life ends, but it's not ending today. And I was like, well, that's true. So we had two good days together. He wasn't eating much. He wasn't speaking much, but when he was speaking, it was very clear those last two days, he had what they call terminal lucidity, where even if you have dementia, you come back and just for that brief time, right before you die, you are your old self. And it's a beautiful thing because he was like very clear. There was only one moment in those two days when he got tiny bit confused. And he said to me, as soon as I get better and I get out of here, I need some new jeans because my jeans are too big and I want to go back to Vietnam, but I need some new jeans. I said, I don't think there's time. And he said, what are you talking about? And I was like, you know what? You're right. We'll get you some new jeans. No problem. But beyond that one moment, he was completely clear, completely lucid. At one point we'd been looking for months for orange sherbet because he loved orange sherbet. And we could only find the, uh, the one that has the strawberry lime and orange together, which he was fine eating because we were just trying to get calories in him and, you know, he was fine with it. But that last day in the hospital, they brought his tray, which he never ate anymore. And there was an orange sherbet. And I said, dad, guess what I've got for you. And he rolled his eyes and groaned because he was tired of us trying to get him to eat. And I said, no, no, you don't have to eat it. I'm just letting you know, there's some orange sherbet. If you would like some, all you got to do is let me know. And he said, oh, and his eyes lit up. And I said, you don't want any, do you, dad? And he was like, yeah. And so I gave him a little spoonful and he rolled it around his mouth. But in the end, he wasn't able to swallow at that point. And he spit it out. Um, He did, though, that last day, asked for a cheeseburger. And I got him a cheeseburger and he ate about a quarter of it. I was surprised. And then later in the day, I found uh, one of those soft peppermints and he loved those. I said, Hey dad, I found some of these if you want one. And he wanted it. But at that point he just sucked on it for a few minutes and then he had to spit it out. He couldn't really chew or swallow or anything. And we'd been trying to make sure he was in no pain, but he suddenly wouldn't take the pain medicine. He told me to, to ask for it, but he suddenly wouldn't take it. And he looked scared and it took me a minute. And I realized he knows he can't swallow this. The rest of us hadn't figured it out yet, but he knows he can't swallow this pill. And so I had to intervene and, you know, 
fight to get the injectable kind of painkiller for him. And at that point, they came into us and said, um, since there's nothing else we can do here, we're going to be discharging him. So either you need to prepare to take him home or we need to try to get him into a hospice facility. And I'm not sure he'll qualify for hospice. So you want to talk about panic? I was panicked because I knew I could not drive him three and a half hours to my house. For logistical reasons, they couldn't go back to his wife's niece's house. Niece's house. Um, and so... I started panicking and working on getting him into a hospice facility. At that point, we also told them to stop all treatment. You know, my father was ready and he approved of that and told me to stop all treatment. And so I did. But of course, as soon as there was a shift change, nobody bothered to read the chart. They came in and gave him potassium and did all this crap. And I had to, again, fight to get them to understand that we had already made the decision and I could not make that decision every single shift change. They needed to read the chart and know that we had said no more treatment. Now, luckily we, I talked to a couple of the nurses and they told me, you know, this one hospice is where we all want to go. And I said, okay, great. I, I really don't care as long as they'll take care of us. So I made an appointment, the social worker from the hospice place or the nurse from the hospice place came to the hospital to evaluate my father. And I gave him all the information. He was a very, very kind man. And he was like, there's no problem. I, your father's going to be admitted. I've just got to call my charge nurse. And that took a load off because for some reason, the hospital kept telling me he may not be sick enough and that we still had two weeks he was dead the next day. So I wasn't impressed with that at all. I don't think, and you're going to hear from the hospice worker, a hospice nurse next week, that it's never a good idea for anyone to tell you the length of time a loved one has left because they don't know. They don't know. They know the signs. And last week, the grief doula gave us some resources that I put in the show notes of little pamphlets that help you understand the dying process. They did not offer any of that information to us. Um, but we got him into the hospice facility and while the hospice nurse was sitting there um, doing the paperwork and making the call to the facility to get the approval and everything, I was standing on one side of his bed. His wife was standing on the other side of his bed. And she and I were talking because really when it came time to stop everything, she really struggled and she said to him, you don't want to leave me, do you? And he smiled and laughed. And then he said, listen to my daughter. And I said to her, we have to do this. We have to do this his way. We just have to. And the the lovely thing was the minute that I said that, the minute he said to listen to me and I said that, she was a thousand percent on board from that point on. Never, never gave another peep about not wanting this, even though none of us wanted to say goodbye. And as she and I are talking over his bed, and this is four months after that first night at Parkland, four months and one day after that night at Parkland is when he died. I looked down and again, he looks awful and he looks gray. And, and she looks at me and she's like, he looks so bad all of a sudden. I was like, I know. And he, he opens his eyes, looks at me, winks and closes his eyes again. Nobody else saw it except for my stepmom and me. And she said, he remembers the game. And I was like, shh, because he really is bad. Like I need to get him in this hospice place, you know? Uh, but that's how clear he was. That last day he remembered 
that. And he had asked to speak to the family by Zoom. So we Zoomed with my sister. He mainly dozed and listened. He didn't talk too much. Um, And then I Zoomed him with his siblings. And it was a really hard call for them. Uh, But I think that's because I was the only one who didn't realize how bad he really looked. Like I was still believing them when they told me he had two weeks left. And my aunt and my uncles told me later that they knew we were on the last day or two. And he was transferred to hospice that night. I went home to get some rest thinking we had two weeks and I was going to work one day and then come back and stay for the duration. And I got a call. I got home at eight o'clock that night and got a call at midnight that if I was coming, I better come now. And I was too distraught. I fell completely apart. And my mother was here at the time and she got on the phone and tried to get the nurse to lie to me and say that there was time that I could sleep. And all the nurse would say was, it's not going to help anyone if you get in a car accident and we won't let him go until you get here. Cause I didn't want his body to be released until I saw him. And so I went ahead and I slept a few hours and I made it back to him the next afternoon and he was still alive. Um, And that night, actually, before I made it back to him, before I went back to sleep, I FaceTimed with my stepmom who was in the room with him and she turned the phone so I could see it. And I said, dad, don't leave yet. I need one more kiss. I'm sorry. And he opened his eye and that was the last response anybody ever got from him. So. And I had said goodbye to him before I left. You know, I told him, I'd scratched his beard and said, you're the best daddy ever. I'll be back in a couple of days. And he said it was okay, but I could tell by his eyes, he didn't think he would be there. I just didn't realize that's what I was seeing in his eyes at the time. And so I zoomed my sister into the hospice room and it was a beautiful, beautiful place. It had a patio, a balcony overlooking our private room had a balcony overlooking this beautiful pond with beautiful trees and a beautiful fountain. And it was a a large room with a little small dining table and a couch and chairs and four, only four people were allowed in. And I zoomed my sister in cause she was out of state. She'd already come though and said goodbye to him in person. And so she attended his death uh, via zoom And we all sat there for the next four hours and waited. And like you heard last week when I was talking to the grief doula and I was asking her about, you know, end of life wives tales, because I've heard things like opening a window helps them depart, giving them permission to go helps them depart. We did that for my grandparents because this was the third family death that I've attended that I've been there for. And I will tell you, they are hard, but they are the most precious memories in my entire life. And so we had given dad permission, his wife, me, my sister, um, my his wife's niece, we'd all given him permission, said, we'll be okay. You can go. And he just kept tearing. Even the hospice nurses seemed surprised that it was taking him as long as it did. And finally, and you may have heard me say this last week, when I was talking to the grief doula, I said, and I didn't even mean to, but I said, dad, you weren't perfect. And I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing telling a dying man? He went perfect. I said, dad, you weren't perfect, but you did your best and you loved us the best you could. 
and it's okay. And it's okay for you to go. We'll be okay. And within moments he was gone. And I will say this. If you have all families as a lawyer, I always tell families, you need to talk about death. You need to prepare. There's documents that can help you do that. But what I didn't understand is when you have a, a multicultural family, you need to understand what each culture's death traditions are. Because luckily through this entire process of four months of caring for dad, my stepmother, her niece and I, and my sister had all developed a loving relationship and a kindness for one another. But it never occurred to me. Like I knew dad wanted to be cremated. We'd agreed we'd have the funeral at my house, but it never occurred to me to say, okay, what are your beliefs, death beliefs, death rituals as an Asian person? And here are mine. Now, luckily because of the love and respect that had grown between us, we were able to navigate it, but we had to navigate it on the fly because it had never occurred to any of us that this is something we had needed to discuss. So for instance, in their culture, and I don't know if this is all Asian cultures, all I can do is speak to my stepmother's culture. In my stepmother's culture, you once, once death happens, she closed his eyes, she kissed him once, I think. And then from that point on, they would not touch the body. And they were like, we need to call the funeral home. We need to get him gone. Because in their culture, it's very bad luck to have a dead body or the belongings of somebody who or the belongings that have been touched by death. Whereas me being an American, I'm going to sit with that body. I'm going to hold his hand. I'm going to kiss him over and over. I'm going to spend time saying goodbye before I call them the funeral home, because once the funeral home comes, we weren't going to pay for him to be prepared to be laid out. I knew this was it. And, um, and so when they were like, we need to call the funeral home, I said, no, sit, I'm taking the time I need with my father. And they did very respectfully. They sat at a distance. They did not ever touch him again. Um, and they watched me and I didn't understand at the time how uncomfortable that must've been for them. Not that I would have changed it because I needed that, but I couldn't figure out why they were really kind of struggling, like with me touching him. Um, and I was crying significantly. And my stepmother said to me all of a sudden, Bethany, I think you love him. And I was like, yes. And she said, then you need to stop crying cry like my niece is crying. And I looked over and if you know, Asian people, they're very stoic people. They, I, it reminds me almost of in the karate kid when Mr. Miyagi is on the beach crying because his dad had died and he's very stoic. He's not sobbing, but the tears are running down his face. And that's how the Asian part of my family cries. I do not cry. Like I, I don't weep and wail, but I do sob. I'm an American, you know? Um, and so I did tone that down for her because that's something that was really troubling to her that I was crying so hard because for her, she believed he was still watching and we had to make him think that we would be okay or his soul would not leave. And so, whereas she had to compromise and be okay with me continuing to touch the body, I compromised and was okay with, okay, I need to be more stoic in my tears for her sake. Um, 
And even planning a multicultural funeral was a bit different because I needed everyone. I needed all the Americans to understand that this had to be, had to end with a happy celebration. We went into the church. We had the funeral. I gave the eulogy. We had the music. It was okay to cry during that. But when we went to the fellowship hall to eat the food, we had, number one, I had to make sure there was enough food because it would have been a very big problem in their culture if I had had a food shortage for our guests. So we made sure there would be plenty of food. And I had told key friends, like, I need you once we get there, it needs to be a happy, joyful time. They need it to be that way because he, in their belief, in their culture, he's still watching and he needs to see that we're okay or he will not depart. It was almost, I, I feel like, though I wish my parents hadn't broken up. I wish that my family had remained intact. I feel like now looking back in retrospect after you know almost a year, that it was extraordinarily meaningful and it gave a beautiful depth to the funeral and the mourning process to have it multicultural because I'd never before had a multicultural death experience before. And now that may not be true for everyone, but for me, I love other cultures. And I have talked about that before on this podcast. I believe we are all related and I want to learn from my Asian cousins and my Iranian cousins and my native American cousins, because I believe we are all related and we are all one family. And so for me at the time, it felt tiny bit challenging because I wanted to make sure that I honored both cultures because I, I needed to honor dad's culture and my culture, but I also needed to honor their culture because he loved their culture, but it gave it such a beautiful depth. And I, I really have gotten more interested in um, the death cultures of other, or the, the death practices of other cultures and even fictional cultures, really. Um, I I know this might be surprising, but I love Star Trek The Next Generation. I have since I was little. And since dad died, I've binge watched it about three times because that's one of my favorite memories. That is one time when we were growing up, my sister and I, that we all four would get together and watch a TV program together. We all loved Jean-Luc Picard and The Next Generation. And so recently, as I was binge watching it for the third time since dad died, I can watch those episodes and I can still hear my father and what he said about, you know, oh, he's not in trouble yet, but he soon will be and things like that. But I was watching one that talked about the Klingon death culture, which would not be appropriate in either the Asian culture that I was trying to honor or in my own culture, but it was still fascinating. That is my story. And and if you followed me on social media, you know that six months later, my favorite dog died, but I got three and a half more years with him than I thought I would. He was only supposed to, his life expectancy was about 11 because of his diabetes and he lived to be 14 and a half. And he basically waited until I was okay. And when he knew that I was okay, after all the years I'd taken care of him, he started slowing down. And within a week he'd had a stroke and I had to cremate him as well. Next week on the podcast, you'll be hearing from a hospice nurse. And again, I believe all nurses are angels on earth, but particularly hospice nurses. There's just something so special about people who 
And really grief doulas too. Cause after I met Kat and interviewed her last week, I mean, death workers, I think they're just angels on earth. I don't think it's that, I don't think we could all do what they do, but they do it so beautifully. And then after the hospice nurse next week, we will switch to more lively springtime themes. So I hope you will enjoy it. And I hope that you're able to take something from my story, from the interview with the grief doula and from the interview with the hospice nurse that might help you in the future or help you heal from anything in your your past where you had a major loss. Thank you for joining us this week and let your light shine. Thank you for listening this week. I appreciate each of you so much and I would love to connect with you. So number one, we're doing a free giveaway. If you will review this podcast, screenshot your review and post it on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok and tag me in it, you'll be entered to win a $50 Amazon gift card. This drawing is good from now until the end of April. So the first week in May, we'll be having the drawing for the $50 Amazon gift card. Again, you can screenshot your review and just post it to social media, tagging me in it so I can be sure to enter you into the drawing. On Instagram, you can find me at the Random Yogi Podcast. On Facebook and TikTok, I'm at the Random Yogi. Also, please connect with me on social media because I do go live at least once a week to try to connect with listeners live. Again, thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please tell one friend about us. Thank you for joining us this week. Please support the Random Yogi Podcast at patreon.com to get bonus content and merchandise. Please join us again next week. And thank you for listening. Thank you.